back to the Traverse Theatre's Open Submissions Workshop podcast, where we give you the tools to take you from idea to draft. In this week's workshop, Claire Duffy takes you through her top tips for writing dialogue. If you're enjoying the series so far, we'd love to hear from you. You can tweet us at Traverse Theatre or email us info at traverse.co.uk. Don't forget to subscribe so you can get these workshops straight to your feed as soon as they're released each Wednesday. Hi, um, my name's Claire Duffy. Um, and this is my workshop on writing dialogue Um, and I have kind of scripted it so I'm going to refer to the script quite a bit because um, yeah because this is a bit of a strange uh, way of doing a workshop normally you I I speak uh, to the people who are in front of me um, and everything changes. I have a structure of the things that I'm going to talk about, but it will change depending on the people that are in the room with me. Um, and I don't know who you are. Uh, so um, I thought I would try to be a bit more careful about my words. So we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Um, so writing dialogue. It was the thing that scared me maybe the most when I wanted to be a writer. Before I started saying with a bit of confidence, I am a writer. I think I had an idea that dialogue was supposed to sound like people really sound. Write dialogue like people really talk. It has to be believable, doesn't it? So you believe in the characters. And there's something really scary in there about somehow impersonating people. For example, I am rubbish at doing accents and I'm not very good at doing impersonations of people. And if I can't do it in real life, then why would I think that I can do it on the page? Why would I be able to impersonate a person's speech patterns on a page? And I also think that there's something a bit uncomfortable about impersonating people. Um, Might be a bit worse than cringy. Might even be disrespectful or wrong, depending on what the circumstances are. Because basically, I suppose what it amounts to is putting words into people's mouths. So there's something about uh, representation of reality and what is reality um, and impersonating people. And there is sort of a kind of a no win situation there. Um, Lots of writers report and I definitely think this is my own experience too. But if you set out to actually do a portrait of a real person, but fictionalise it, change the names, um, maybe some of the circumstances, but basically you want to kind of use uh, a real person as inspiration. Um, I, I have been terrified at opening night or if they go and see the play and they think, oh, you know, what are they going to think? Because I base that character on them. Will they notice? And they never do, never do. They come out and they say, oh, what an amazing bastard that character was. I loved it. <laughs> and then, of course, when you really, really, really didn't intend to uh, do a portrait of somebody, they'll see it and they'll come up to you very sadly afterwards and shake their head and say, oh, how could you? How could you? Um, so there's no winning. The first problem with writing dialogue in drama is that there must first be characters to talk, but they don't have to be people, of course. Maybe it's fun to start with a tiny cough drop and a tube of toothpaste. What might these guys say to each other? Uh, so this is the tiny cough drop. Um, excuse me, do you have the time? 
I'll tell you the time if you give me a squeeze. It's quite interesting actually, because as soon as you start writing dialogue, characters start to emerge. Just the size and texture of these two objects start to suggest people, character and relationship. A meek, naked, oh, naked, naked cough drop that's very hard to crack approaches a big squishy toothpaste tube. The cough drop wants something, the time. The tube of toothpaste also wants something, a hug. So she offers a proposition. I'll do something for you if you do something for me. So if there is dialogue, there has to be characters and characters that represent human beings, human beings that are dealing with the complexity and challenges of being alive. This all might seem really obvious, but I think it's important to think about and investigate the fundamentals. So you have to have two characters that want something from each other. Um, I suppose something that they want from each other sort of immediately. Um, but they also have something kind of deeper as well that they're not conscious of yet that they need. So you're trying, you need to create characters that encounter each other that want something and also need something and those wants and needs balance and collide with each other in different ways. So I might actually one day find a way of writing um, a play actually about objects, not using objects as representations of human beings and characters. Um, I'm really interested in post-anthropomorphism. Um, I think I've said that, a post-anthropomorphic uh, world um, and I suppose I'm saying that because I just want to stress that the things that I'm going to say in this workshop about dialogue are making lots of assumptions about the world and reality um, and they're useful things to learn and I guess lots of the things that I started to learn sort of formally about when I did my MA these are the things that I still think about um, now um, when writing dialogue but it's not to say that it's the only way at all. Um, and so I just want to say that right up front and to say that I think if we could live in a world where human beings didn't assume that they were the most important species or entity even, uh, thing, uh, if we were able to think about that, we would not write the plays that we do like we do. Um, and I think maybe Gertrude Stein uh, has had the best shot at writing a play that describes a very other world. Um, I'm just going to read you a little bit from what happened. A five-act play by Gertrude Stein. Act one, brackets, one. Loud and no cataract. Not any nuisance is depressing. Brackets, five. A single sum, four and five together and one. Not any sun, a clear signal and an exchange. Silence is in blessing and chasing and coincidences being right. A simple melancholy, clearly precious and on the surface and surrounded and mixed strangely. A vegetable window. 
and clearly, most clearly, an exchange in parts and complete. A tiger, a wrapped and a surrounding overcoat, securely arranged with spots old enough to be thoughtful, useful and witty. Quite witty in a secret and in a blinding flurry. Length, what is length when silence is so windowful? What is the use of a saw if there is no joint and no toady and no tag and not even an eraser? What is the commonest exchange between more laughing and most? Carelessness is carelessness and a cake, well a cake is a powder and is very likely to be powder. It is very likely to be much worse. It goes on like that for a couple of pages. The thing that's interesting about this uh, writing um, is that it forces you as the reader or maybe as the director, if you wanted to put this on as a play, it forces you to engage with lots of the things that I'm going to say about how to write dialogue because it doesn't make these choices. It, she gives us lots of ideas and words and I am, I don't know, suggestions. Um, <clears throat> and, but it's up to you to decide what it all means. So we've thought about whether dialogue really requires people or characters and decided that for now it does, but do they need to talk for it to be dialogue? Not necessarily. Try writing a scene where your characters say nothing, but the relationship still changes. So for example, maybe Cough Drop is crying. It's gone all sticky as well. Cough Drop is crying and feeling very lonely and sore. And tube of toothpaste enters and watches. And cough drop senses that someone is present and looks up a bit pathetically. And the tube of toothpaste gets on the floor and snakes over to the cough drop and the cough drop snuggles up. There's a tube of toothpaste. So, what happened there? Write down what you saw. Write down what you think the backstory is. Think about the play you're working on and consider if there might be moments when there is non-verbal dialogue. So you don't necessarily need to have words for dialogue, for dramatic dialogue. The first thing potentially that you really need is to have something that's at stake. What are the characters potentially going to win or lose? So try and think about your own characters. What do they have to win or lose? What could be, I suppose this is kind of like the hook for your whole play? What is some, something that is so compelling that the audience are going to want to find out whether they'll get the thing that they want or not? What What is at stake? Um, so, for example, with um, toothpaste and little naked cough drop, maybe they are in a codependent relationship. Maybe they're married. Maybe cough drop is crying because of something that toothpaste said. And now toothpaste is coming over and trying to comfort them. And if that was the case, if that was the context for that bit of dialogue, then what would be at stake would be their marriage, potentially. So write down what is at stake for your characters. What do they have to win or lose?
be as specific as you can as well. The other thing that dialogue needs is to be active. Um, what does that mean? Um, I suppose it basically means that the characters from every single beat of what they say, a phrase or action, they are trying to get the thing that they want. So something shifts and changes every single time. Um, even if the bigger idea is, like in Waiting for Godot, that nothing ever changes, even in that situation where the playwright is trying to express a sense of the unchangingness of the universe, in the dialogue, it's incredibly active. So I'm just going to read you maybe like the first couple of lines of Waiting for Godot. Um, Estragon, giving up again. He's trying to, what's he trying to do? He's trying to take off his boots. Um, and he pulls with both hands, panting. He gives up exhausted, tries again, and then as before. And then enter Vladimir. And Estragon gives up again with his boots and says, nothing to be done. Vladimir advances with short, stiff strides, legs wide apart. I'm beginning to come around to that opinion. All my life I've tried to put it from me, saying, Vladimir, be reasonable. You haven't yet tried everything. And I resumed the struggle. He broods, musing on the struggle, turning to Estragon. So there you are again. Estragon, am I? Vladimir, I'm glad to see you back. I thought you were gone forever. Estragon, me too. Together at last. We'll have to celebrate this, but how? He reflects. Get up till I embrace you. Estragon, irritably. Not now, not now. Vladimir, hurt coldly. May one inquire where his highness spent the night? Estragon, in a ditch. Vladimir, admiringly. A ditch? Where? Estragon, without gesture. Over there. Vladimir, and they didn't beat you up? Estragon, beat me? Certainly they beat me. Vladimir, the same lot as usual. The same, I don't know. So what's interesting about that is that I guess they are in a codependent relationship, a bit like toothpaste and um, cough sweet, which I hadn't planned at all. So I think what's uh, happening here for Estragon and Vladimir is a bit like toothpaste and cough sweet. They're in a codependent relationship. So they want stuff from each other um, and they also don't want things from each other and there's a constant balance and shift between the two of them and that's what makes their relationship active. Um, I suppose like the first time that we see that in that bit of dialogue is uh, when Vladimir, is it Vladimir says, um, Mm, who's the one who asks them, get up till I embrace you? That's Vladimir says, get up till I embrace you and is refused uh, by Estragon by saying, not now. And so kind of in that, I want something, I want you to get up and give me a hug. No, I won't. Not now. We get kind of like the essence of what their relationship is and it makes sense then for the rest of the dialogue kind of works off of that refusal from Estragon. Vladimir is hurt and cold and of course um, Estragon, his highness, 
afterwards. Um, and then we get a little bit of information. Did they beat you last night? Um, and this is another thing that dialogue really needs, um, is uh, what William Goldman calls using information as ammunition, so that you never give a bit of information to your audience without it being kind of like deeply tied to the drama of what's happening right there. And the drama is what's changing, what's at stake. Um, I've met, just mentioned William Goldman. Um, what he has to say about uh, writing is uh, pretty much the best stuff that's ever been written probably about how to write. Um, it's just so entertaining as well. So I highly recommend you reading um, Which Lie Did I Tell? And I um, can't remember what it's called now, Scenes, Scenes from the Screen Trade, I think it's called. Um, so William Goldman says that dialogue is like tennis. So uh, I guess this is about uh, dialogue, using a variety in your dialogue. Um, every line is a shot and every line creates a win or lose for the characters. So maybe it would be a useful thing for you to do is to actually watch a really brilliant tennis match because the variety and the um, tactics and the strategy that is used in a tennis match is a really useful guide in terms of thinking about the variety, tactics and strategies that your two characters might use when they're doing their dialogue. If every line is a shot across the um, across the net, is it going to be a long shot? Is it an unexpected backhand? Is it a long lob that is unpredictable where it's going to land? Or a quick volley? Is it something that's like a miraculous jump, like Boris Becker kind of sent off his um, his racket to finish off the, the shot for him because he couldn't get his body there in time, you know? I think that's it's quite a useful thing to to have that model um, w when thinking about um, the variety. And I suppose in terms of strategy, yeah, it's is it luck? Is it brute force? What is it? And how does that? I suppose this is the point. How does that then reveal the character of your characters? Because really, I think character is action what people do speaks so profoundly of who they are. What they say is arguably less uh, less true of who they are um, or less clearly true of who they are. Um, so I've said you need to have something at stake. The dialogue needs to be active. It needs to have variety. And we've already touched on this a little bit information is ammunition. So we didn't know that Vladimir and Estragon were in a world where they got beaten up every night until the point where that character said it, but they said it in a way that was a jibe at the other character because they were feeling, um, I think if I get it the right way around, because they were feeling hurt because they'd been refused a hug. Okay, so when you deliver information through dialogue but you don't make it active that's when it becomes exposition if you've heard that word before 
basically it means that you're telling the audience stuff directly and very and they know it um and it makes it quite slow i suppose is is the experience for an audience is that um it's quite dull really um so here's an example of expositional writing that i've done for you uh Suze. hello hello my sister you must be tired you're now in your eighth month of pregnancy helen why yes Suze. And you must be so sad now that the IVF treatment you've been doing for the past 10 years has finally come to an end. So the main thing here is that people don't tell each other the things that they already know. Not many people talk about big, emotional, private things that easily. If they do, then they are very particular characters. So if this dialogue was in a play between Helen and Suze, pregnant Helen and um, IVF, uh, no, IVF Helen and pregnant Suze. If this dialogue was in a play, this so this dialogue could be about two sisters who really hate each other because maybe people might speak to each other like this, but that is about the subtext and the context of the lines. Just as they are, we are... If, if you just say, hello, Helen, my sister, you must be tired now that you're in your eighth month of pregnancy... Uh, it's just that that's the situation that that character is in. But I could imagine it being said in a way that would just show us how much the sister hated her and was relishing how tired she was. So no hard and fast rules. You can always find subtext, I suppose. That's back to Gertrude Stein and finding out the meaning for yourself when you're the reader or the director or the audience will find meaning even when it's not really there. Um, so subtext, um, I've got an exercise for you. Um, so there'll be a, hopefully there'll be a, um, a, a worksheet that you can download and to have a go at. But I've got um, a transcript of Barack Obama and Donald Trump doing their first press conference. And I just thought you might have fun writing in what you think the subtext is because there's what they say and then what they maybe are actually thinking. Um, another place where you can go very famously to see this kind of thing is in Annie Hall by Woody Allen, when um, Woody Allen goes back to Diane Keaton's um, flats for the first time and they're outside drinking wine and flirting with each other. And he has the subtext coming up um, as written like subtitles in between what they're actually saying, uh, which is really funny. Um, so knowing what the subtext is, is kind of all of the job of, well, it's, it's a lot of the job of writing dialogue. Um, so to wrap things up, some key things to think about when writing dialogue is think about what's at stake. What do the characters want? What are they going to win or lose? Make the dialogue active. How does each line get each character closer or further away from what's at stake? Are you thinking about rhythm and pace? Are the characters telling each other something that they already know? And what is the subtext? What are they really also thinking while they speak? So the last thing I'm going to do in this workshop is encourage you, I suppose, to read plays. Seems so obvious. Um... But read plays critically, look at dialogue and take some time to really think about the way that the dialogue is working um, because that's how you're going to learn.
better than anything else. Doing it yourself and reading other people doing it and really thinking about it. Sometimes I think it's like in, in a normal workshop, I, this is my favourite bit when I do this in my dialogue workshops because I'm going to read you um, the first page. Of, oh, it's not the first page, actually. It's the 10th page of Iron by Rona Munro. Um, and we normally talk about it for like 20 minutes or so and just share all of the different thoughts and questions that we have. Uh, the point of this exercise, I suppose, is normally just to first of all say, look how much information can be packed into, well, certainly one page, but just a few lines of dialogue, really. Um, it's amazing how much of the whole play can be found in any one page. Um, apparently, uh, Sarah Kane, somebody told me that Sarah Kane, when she was asked to read plays uh, by new writers, she would just throw the whole script up in the air and randomly pick a page and read that as a kind of first try of what it is that that writer had to offer. And I, I actually probably didn't throw it up in the air because that would be a ridiculous thing to do. What a pain to put them all back together again. But um, but the point, the, the principle of it is that, yeah, I think that's really true that you, you can tell how in control um, uh, and sort of how, how much knowledge the writer has about the play that they're writing just by looking at any one page of dialogue and you can kind of see the whole play in any one page of dialogue. Um, so I'm going to read the 10th page of Iron by Rona Munro, which is one of my favourite, uh, which was one of my favourite play-going experiences um, back in whenever it was, 2000 maybe. Um, and I'm just going to like make a few comments about it. This is like by no means everything that could be said about it. And as I said, um, this is a, a really fun thing to do with some other people. So I would really encourage you to get a couple of your fellow writer mates together um, and to look at your a, a page from your favourite plays and read it out and talk about why it works, what works, what the tricks are that that writer is using, what strategies and tactics those characters are using. And just, yeah, analyse a bit of writing that you really love and admire using some of the things that I've been talking about today. Okay, so. A visiting room. It's day. Josie stands at the edge of the visiting room looking for Faye. A great buzz of conversation around them. Josie sees Faye. She crosses over to her and sits down. The guards stroll through this. There's a concentrated area where Faye and Josie are. Outside that, the sense of a great crowd of people talking all around them. The guards are not there the whole time. They walk through the scene occasionally, patrolling the waiting room. Faye looks at Josie. A blank moment. Josie. Hi. Faye. Oh, hello. Neither of them speaks for a moment, looking at each other. Faye quickly grows uncomfortable, looking away, looking around the room. Faye. You found your way all right then? Josie. Yeah, no problems. Another pause. Josie's eyes remain fixed on Faye's face. Faye looks round the room, fidgets nervously. Faye. The woman next door nearly killed herself last night. Josie. Did she? Yeah, 
I heard her. She's fractured her skull. I heard her through the wall. Sounded like someone dropping a sack of potatoes. She never made a sound. Didn't she? Not a peep. See, what she was doing was falling off the radiator over and over. She must have got herself up onto the radiator and perched there like a seagull. Then she took a dive into the floor, head first. Never put her hands out to break her fall. So that's that one page. This is the first bit of dialogue, first page when Josie uh, meets her mother, Faye, who's been in prison for murder. Um, and we know that before we get to this page. Um, so if we think about that idea of um, dialogue being like a tennis match and there's something at stake, you might not know what's at stake particularly this early on in a play, but there's something at stake and who's winning and who, who wants what. And that's what we're trying to find out as an audience is we're trying to find out who who wants what from each other in this situation. So even the way that they say hello to each other, Josie, hi, quite direct. And she's standing up, I think, before she sits down and say, oh, hello. Almost like she's trying to say that she doesn't really think that this is that important or significant. Oh, hello. Not as sort of like engaged as high. Um, maybe less in control. Oh, no, Josie is sitting down. It says in the stage direction. So they're sitting equally facing each other across the table. Josie's coming into Faye's space. So Josie is maybe wanting to assert her um, control of herself and this situation. It doesn't say here, but the way they dress is going to be significant as well. Josie's quite smart and Faye is in whatever... Uh, her prison outfit is. Maybe there's not a uniform. Maybe there is. I don't know. But there's already a sense that there's a gameplay in the way that they don't use the same way of saying hello, that Faye chooses not to use the same way of saying hello to Josie. Feels like she's playing an angle with only saying, oh, hello. You found your way all right then. And Josie replies, yeah, no problems. They're definitely sort of circling around each other, aren't they? Not giving too much away. Um, the stage directions are Josie's eyes remain fixed on Faye's face. Faye looks around the room and fidgets nervously. So clearly the stakes, um, no, the status relationship between the two characters is that Josie is high status and Faye is nervous and of lower status and so then she says Faye who's fidgeting nervously says the woman next door nearly killed herself last night big win I think for Faye like if Josie is going in there saying I feel like I can be in control in this situation 
I might be going into a prison. I might be seeing my mother who I haven't seen for a long time, but I'm a grown up. I'm in control. I know what's going on. Her mother has shot all that down, really, almost completely. The woman next door killed herself last night. Nearly killed herself last night. It's a shocking thing. Um, and there's so many different reasons why she might say that. It might be because she just doesn't know what else to say and it's true and it's just the first thing that blurts out of her head. Or maybe it's really calculated. Maybe it's deliberately trying to knock that little bit of confidence that Josie's bringing into this strange and difficult situation. And Josie sort of holds on to herself by saying, did she? Oh no, Did yes, yeah, she says, did she? Yeah, I heard her. She fractured her skull. I heard her through the wall. Sounded like someone dropping a sack of potatoes. She never made a sound. Didn't she? So Josie's keeping fairly monosyllabic as Faye starts to become quite lyrical, actually, in the way that she's describing this story. Faye carries on, not a peep. See what she was doing after the falling off. See, what she was doing was falling off the radiator over and over. She must have got herself onto the radiator and perched there like a seagull. Then she took a dive into the floor head first, never put her hands out to break her fall. So this is a really vivid, shocking, violent, brutal story of desperation that Faye is offering to her daughter who she hasn't seen for years, many years. And she's a convicted murderer, and this is what she opens with. So in a way, it's saying these are what the stakes are as well, aren't they? For Faye, she's living in a life and death situation. And she's bringing that to Josie. That's what's going to be at stake for the two of them. The possibility, perhaps, of Faye's own suicide is being launched here. The possibility of Faye being extremely manipulative. Why does she tell her this story now? The aggression that Faye's displaying by telling this story. Is she testing her? Is she seeing what her reaction is going to be from this story? And then the last thing I'm going to say about this that always really strikes me is this use of the word seagull. She must have got herself up on the radiator and perched there like a seagull. It's so vivid and it's so strange as well, you know. Why would Faye be imagining her like a seagull? And it gives a really strong hint, I think, that this is not a true story because because of the literariness of it, of the imagination that's been put into telling this story to make it a really good story. And I suppose then the last thing as well is if she, whether this is true or not, and we don't know whether it is yet, Faye enjoys it by using that word seagull, by describing it so carefully. Anyway, there's lots of other things that you could say about that. Um, I encourage you to share your work, don't give up, um, enjoy writing, write about what you know about 
Oh, that's such a cliche. I don't really mean that. I, re- I mean, write about what you care about. Um, if you care about it, if you believe it, I think the things that really matter to you are the things that you write well about. And it might take a really long time. I've just finished writing a short drama. And I think in some ways it's taken me kind of all my life because I got the first bit of inspiration for this story when I was um, in my 20s in the 1990s. And now I've written a 10 minute drama about something that was inspired then. So, and I keep on coming back to this subject again and again. So don't give up, keep going, read and enjoy writing. Thank you. Bye. You can watch or listen to all available open submissions workshops on our website. For more information and to support our talent development work, please see the support us page on our website. Every donation makes a huge difference. Thanks again for listening. Be sure to join us next Wednesday for Claire Duffy's workshop on writing dialogue. Until then, get writing and good luck.